Honor AANHPI heritage, communities, and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. Vaccination greatly reduces your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. Talk to a doctor if you have questions. Find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Dagny Zhu. Dr. Zhu is a Harvard-educated, board-certified ophthalmologist who specializes in cornea, cataract, and refractive surgery. She is owner and medical director of Hyperspeed LASIK, an InVision eye centers company in Roland Heights, California. As a key opinion leader in advanced leisure vision correction, and premium cataract surgery, Dr. Zhu serves as a medical advisor to multiple ophthalmic companies and has been featured in over 200 lectures, presentations, publications, and press features, including The Today Show, Huffington Post, InStyle, Yahoo News, NBC News, and CNN. Notably, Dr. Zhu has garnered a large social media presence as a podcast co-host and healthcare influencer of over 50,000 followers on Instagram at DZIMD, where she promotes health and science, champions for women and people of color, and provides inspiration and mentorship to the next generation. Dr. Dagny Zhu, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys, Brian and Maggie, for having me on. It's such an honor to be here. Of course. I feel like it's been a long time coming, and we've been meaning to have you on the show for such a long time now. We finally get to have you here, right? So... Dagny, take it away. Like, tell us about your upbringing, what that was like. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I love sharing this perspective from like a medical background because I feel like you guys have so many awesome entrepreneurs and all this, these cool fields. I feel a little boring coming from the medical side, but there's definitely more of us doctors now who are being more entrepreneurial, putting ourselves out there and, you know, starting our own practices and things like that. My background is probably similar to a lot of the Asian Americans here in the U.S. I mean, I'm an immigrant first generation. I was born in Shanghai, China, and then my parents wanted to come here for higher education. So we moved to California when I was about three years old, and my dad got his master's degree in like, I still don't know what he does, like software engineering or IT. But, you know, unfortunately, as we were finally getting our feet on the ground, you know, it was pretty hard growing up here as an immigrant, as many of you know. We were living out of people's houses, not having our own place. I was sleeping on the floor. I was, I remember being home alone, like at the age of three or four, as my parents were working and studying. My mom was like waitress in Chinese restaurants almost every night and weekend. But so as soon as we finally got our feet on the ground, unfortunately, my parents got divorced, my dad kind of left us. And so me and my mom were kind of just left on our own. And my mom, she was the one who didn't have much of that educational background. She didn't know how to speak English. And so literally, it was just me and her as, you know, her only child and, you know, kind of trying to find our way. And so came from very humble beginnings. But I think just watching her, you know, hustle, (laughs) as you guys do so well, she taught herself English by, you know, going to adult school at night after working. She entered like uh, courses to get her certificate in bookkeeping so she can stop waitressing and do an office job. 
And so she spent more time with me. And then she was just very savvy with money, like investing, investing in five two nines and like mutual funds without knowing much about the English language. So I was always impressed with her financial savvy. But eventually we were able to buy a home when I was in high school. And it kind of felt like we reached the American dream. And so just watching her go through all that, I always felt that work ethic. And so in my school and my studies, I always wanted to do the best so that I could, you know, elevate us and, you know, get us to a better place. And I think that's just the internal drive that pushes a lot of us immigrants. So I was very fortunate to be able to do well in my studies and have the opportunity to go to medical school and become a doctor. And it's kind of crazy now because it's full circle. I literally bought a practice in my hometown of Rolling Heights where I grew up. So like it's down the street from the high school I went to, from the home that we bought when I was in high school. And my mom still brings me lunch here and then because she lives right around the corner. So she's super proud and also happy that I stayed close to home. So that's a little bit about my upbringing and where I came from. Definitely never thought that I'd be in this position today. Wow. Oh my goodness. I mean, just hearing that story, it really tugs on my heartstrings. It seems like you really look up to your mom a lot and she really set a really, really caring and good example for you. Just, you know, although our parents, a lot of our parents, you know, immigrants, they had nothing on their backs. They just really came here not knowing the language, not knowing anything, but really hustling to get to where they are, doing everything that they can to learn a new language and just be able to feed the family, provide for the family. And it seems like your mom did everything in that field. And I want to know, because you went into medicine, it seems like you wanted to really show your mom that you wanted to like support her and return the favor back to her. Tell us your passion for medicine and why you chose eye care specifically as your specialty. I feel like our parents, our immigrant parents are like the original hustlers. <laughs> and a lot of us have kind of tiger moms or tiger parents kind of push us into medicine, right? But honestly, my mom is like the anti-tiger mom. She never, she never pushed me to do anything. She always just had my happiness in mind. Honestly, I've always said that she'd be happy if I just took like a regular nine to five office job because she, seeing me go through training and coming back late and being on call and going out for emergency surgeries, it actually like really broke her heart sometimes. And she'd just be like, why are you a doctor? Why are you working so hard? Why can't you just like <laughs> take an easier job, enjoy your life more, which is like the opposite of what most tiger parents would say. So really, I chose this path more for myself. Like I've always been passionate about science and obviously making a difference in people's lives. And I feel like initially when I wanted to go into medicine, you explore all your different options. And I felt like I wanted to do something surgical because surgery is where you make the biggest impact on people's lives in, a sh in the shortest amount of time. Like they have a problem and you can fix it with your hands. And it's a little different from other fields of medicine, like family medicine, internal medicine, where you're kind of just monitoring like chronic problems that unfortunately we don't have a cure for. But surgery really provided that like immediate satisfaction. And so I turned to ophthalmology because not only is it a surgical field, but it's such a beautiful surgical field. Like the surgeries that we do inside this tiny, you know, 12 millimeter eyeball, it's like doing art inside the eye. And I feel so privileged every day with like a 10 minute, 20 minute LASIK surgery or cataract surgery. I think like a huge change in people's quality of life. Like the next day or even right then after the surgery, they sit up and they can see which is like, I mean, what's greater than providing someone with a gift of sight, right? And so it's definitely the most rewarding feel I felt in medicine. So I was drawn to that for that reason. And also the technology, like some fields of medicine are kind of slow 
to evolve. They kind of use the same old, my husband's an orthodontist who does braces and I make fun of him because, and he says the same thing, that it's an old field that hasn't really changed. We still use wires to make teeth move according to physics, like nothing super innovative has come out of it, except for Invisalign, I guess. <laughs> but ophthalmology, literally, we're innovating every single day. Like there's a new laser or like a new eye drop or new like scanning machine that literally comes out like every month, like there's some new breakthrough. And we're still trying to find that like ultimate holy grail of how to cure people's um, presbyopia. So we're too young to know what that term is, but one day, everyone turns 40 or 45, and the great vision you had up close, seeing your cell phones and your computers, it's going to go away. <laughs> like, you have to use reading glasses one day. And that happens to 100% of people. And so part of my research and also the field that I'm interested in is how can we fix that so we can restore people's, not only their distance vision, which we figured out pretty well with LASIK and things like that, but the mirror vision is actually really, really tough. And so there's different surgeries. You can do different eye drops coming out, implants. So that's kind of where I'm at right now and where the future is headed, I think, for at least eye care refractive surgery and cataract surgery. I just wanted to note that like Brian and I, we just got our eyes checked a couple of weeks ago. And it's just really interesting because I haven't gotten my eyes checked in maybe like years. And I noticed that the office that we went to, the practice that we went to, they had all of this new technology that I had never seen before. And just as you mentioned, Debbie, it's incredible to see, you know, all this new technology. I'm just like, oh, what does this machine do? What does that machine do? Right. And it's just amazing how far our technology has advanced for our eye care. And you're right. Like before, my parents would ask me to read like small little fonts on little containers and it would be no problem for me. But last week, I tried to like read this little font on my concealer, my eye concealer, where it's like what color it was. And I couldn't see it. I was just like, this is so Amen. Weird. <laughs> you are still too young. I don't believe it. I don't no, believe it. <laughs> it was something that I didn't believe either. I was just like, oh my goodness, my vision has really changed. But something that happens to us as we grow older, it's something that we don't notice. But it's um, it's interesting that you say that it happens to 100% of the people. But you know, we're, we're progressing in, in ways to see how we can you know, have everyone be able to have better eyesight. Yeah, for sure. We take for granted the eyesight that we have now, especially living in this digital world. Like our world is like arm's length and closer. And so once that goes away, like, oh man, it impacts people so much. And they think that they're blind. They think that they're, they have this terrible disease that they develop and they don't realize it's the natural part of aging. Like there needs to be a PSA out there about this condition because literally I have people walking in every day being like, what is going on with my vision? I used to see perfect 2020 and now I, something terrible is happening. So I have to explain it. But you're right about preventative eye care, too. It's so important to get yearly eye exams because we're catching things all the time, even in young, healthy people, that people don't know because it doesn't affect your vision until the end stages. So I run like a LASIK cataract practice. So I see lots of healthy young people coming in for LASIK evaluation all the time. And then we find these sometimes terrible sight-threatening conditions on exam. Like a few months ago, I diagnosed you know, mo pretty moderate to almost severe glaucoma and a really young, like 18-year-old who had no idea that that was happening, but we caught it so we could, you know, implement the treatment to slow down the progression as much as possible. So things like that, like you're missing, you know, because people don't go to see the doc to see the doctor until something's wrong, right? Until they have symptoms, until they're noticing something, but preventative care and screening is so important. Yeah, I definitely 
sense your your passion and what you do throughout the entire uh, early part of the podcast is like wow like you definitely talk about it, you definitely be passionate what i'm really curious about is how you manage to balance everything right because obviously you have your own private practice i know your husband as well he's a very energetic guy cool guy shout out to him and i'm kind of curious because how do you manage to balance all things in your life you're a new mom right you have your business uh i believe your husband also has as a private practice as well. And you're, you have a presence of social media, right? And to us, looking at that, it's like, whoa, like, how do you manage everything? Like, out of curiosity, like, how do you manage everything? What is your day-to-day life? <laughs> I think everyone who's high achieving always says there's no such thing as work-life balance, right? There's no way to achieve equal balance for everything you want to do in your life. You just have to prioritize certain things at certain points in your life and be okay with putting other things on the back burner. And I do that process every day. Like today, I'm not in surgery. I'm going to focus on my baby, you know, where I'm just going to dedicate half the day to him, not be on my phone, not be on social media and just spend time with him. You know, you just have to be very conscious about where you allocate your time. And for me, luckily, it's easy to do everything that I do because I enjoy it. You know, I think that's the best way to do things is when you enjoy it. It doesn't feel like work. So like when I'm at work, I'm busy doing my surgeries, but I love doing surgery, as you guys know, because you make such a huge difference. And at the same time, when I'm not in surgery, I'm like giving talks, you know, to, to companies or to colleagues. And I love sharing information and educating about the latest advances. Or like I'm writing another post on social media, educating about these diseases that people don't know about. And it brings me a lot of passion and joy. Like I, I just enjoy it. And then, you know, it really takes a village because I could not be doing everything that I'm doing with a baby on my own. You know, like I cannot take all the credit. And my husband lets me know this. He's like, you know, I'm helping you a lot, right? <laughs> you know how lucky we are to have our parents, right? And I absolutely am so grateful because we have like both grandmas nearby and they help out with the babies. And my husband, he runs his own practice as well. So we both need a lot of help on the personal side of things. So we outsource as much as possible. You know, we have in-laws for a baby. We have house cleaners. We have like food that we pick up. Like my husband loves cooking, but honestly, I can't remember the last time he prepared a home-cooked meal because we just don't have time and you just kind of have to do things to make it work. And we used to be very frugal about these things or like wanting to do everything on our own. And, you know, we felt bad having other people do these mundane things for us, but now we've just given into it because some things are just not worth our time. Like our time is better spent on areas where we have strengths in and we can produce things that are valuable, make an impact rather than like, you know, doing laundry. I'm a horrible homemaker. You know, like I'm not a good, <laughs> I'm not a good house cleaner, housekeeper. Like you probably don't want me doing that stuff anyway. So anyways, I think it's all about the perspective and, you know, how to prioritize things in your life and be okay with it. Daggy, stop giving Maggie ideas. <laughs> Are you, is Maggie trying to do it all like home stuff too? Like, let it go, girl. You just got to outsource it. Brian, I mean, the men of the modern day, right? Modern men, they're they're very good in the home, I have to say. I, and, yeah. And sharing responsibilities. I would say I'm pretty good at cleaning the house and cooking all the time. <laughs> and it, literally, like before we had our podcast, you, I was like, "Oh no, like I didn't cook lunch for Maggie yet." So I ran downstairs. <laughs> yeah, Brian's pretty good at that. <laughs> all right, so he gave you credit. 
you got credit from her, so you're doing a good job. That's impressive. Oh my gosh, but Dagny, you are impressive. I mean, we done, we have done, you know, some research on you. We know that you attended UCLA on a full tuition region scholarship, the highest award granted in the UC system, and then you graduated summa cum laude with a degree in molecular cell and developmental biology, and then received your MD at Harvard Medical School, right, where you discovered your love for ophthalmology, and you also perform like cutting edge research on immunology. And so I want to know, like, after all of that, when you wanted to kind of set up your own practice, what was that process like? I want to know how did you go about setting up your own practice? And what were just like the road bumps and like roadblocks and just like, you know, struggles during that process of setting up your own practice? Yeah, yeah, that's such a great transition, because I feel like I'm like the typical you know, child, dream child of every Asian American immigrant parent, right? Like do well, excel in your studies, get a good job, you know, make good money and let that be that. And I feel like I kind of lived in a box like that because of my upbringing. Like I I wasn't really one who was born very outspoken or one to take risks. Like I was very cookie cutter, like do well in my studies, do well in school. This is the way to you know, elevate our family in the future. And I would have to say it wasn't until after I graduated from residency where I was like, you know, I want to do something more. I don't want to just work for someone nine to five, you know, see patients and go home. Like I want to have more control over my practice and how I practice and what patients I serve, what technology I use. I want to have more of an impact in the field. Like I want to innovate. I want to do research. And I have to say a big influence of that was my own husband, Brian. Again, I'm giving him so, so much props and he'll be very happy to listen to this episode because I feel like he came from a similar immigrant background, like growing up with a Vietnamese refugee family coming from very little. But he's always been like street smart more than book smart. And so he's always been kind of hustler, you know, and he's always had in his mind that he wanted to do more. And so some of that definitely rubbed off on me. Like we met at Harvard. So I was a Harvard medical student. He was a Harvard dental student. And he's always like, I don't know how I made it into Harvard. Because <laughs> he's like, you know, I didn't concentrate on like the studying, but his extracurriculars, his leadership activities, that's what got him there. And so he always saw so much potential in me. And he's like, Daddy, you can do so much more. Like, you can, you can be like a leader in the field and you can have this like amazing business or empire that you're going. So we're actually trying to grow this together. So when I first came out of fellowship training, I was like a lot of my medical colleagues where I just wanted to find any job that would pay a good salary and be done with it. And I had opportunities to work at jobs like that where I may never be a partner or owner. I just work as an associate under someone or I work for a hospital system and let that be that. But then this opportunity came up where there was this big refractive LASIK cataract practice for sale in my hometown. And there was no guaranteed base salary. You know, all my colleagues were getting guaranteed base salaries, bonuses for relocating. Like for me, I had to buy this practice. Like I had to literally take out more loans, put in cash to buy this practice, coming straight out of training with no money saved and already having debt from all this, all the schooling and training that we've had. So it was a huge financial risk, but we felt like the upside was worth it in the end, because it's, you have, you know, having autonomy as a doctor is so important these days. Like, I don't know if you know what's going on in the healthcare field, but less and less doctors are becoming owners. They're becoming employees. You know, these practices are getting bought by private equity. So we're answering to like a higher order. We can't really run things the way that we used to. Like doctors used to be small business owners, but fewer and fewer doctors have the autonomy now. And so 
this is an opportunity for me to still have some control over how I want to practice and what I want to do with it. And so that was always very exciting to me. But early on, it was super hard, like I said, because we had no guarantee. We didn't know what would become of it. And we had to put in a huge financial investment from the get-go. Me having no training, literally, within like the real world of refractive surgery or practicing medicine, like I had to learn a lot of that on the go in the beginning. And now, you know, just looking four to five years back and how far we've come, like we're literally like, it was already a pretty successful practice, but we've literally brought it to like the next level, like probably one of the highest volume practices. I probably do more surgery than the majority of college refractive surgeons in the area and certainly college my age. Like I've gotten a lot farther because I made that in initial investment in myself. And so because of that, like I'm able to speak on, you know, podiums and speak for a lot of companies because I'm kind of a leader in that field because I got that opportunity old, uh, early on by becoming my own owner versus working for somewhere where you don't get those many opportunities, you know, as, as, as a associate. So yeah, I definitely felt like it was a lot of struggles in the beginning, but it certainly pays off. Like, you don't get big rewards unless you put in big investments and you take a big risk, right? Big risk, big reward. So that's kind of the route that we took. And I could not have done it with my my family without Brian believing in me. So yeah, we're just very fortunate to be where we are now. And we're hoping now to expand. So this center is very successful and stable. We're hoping to open a few more centers now in the surrounding areas within the next five years. That's kind of like our five-year plan and hopefully own a surgery center as well. So we're still looking for ways to grow. That's incredible. I mean, and especially I think because you kind of put yourself as the brand too. You put so much on social media with your presence on there, with your face on there. And so when people look at this type of content and share it with their friends and everything like that, your content is actually very, very educational. Like I learn a lot of things from just watching your content. And I think that's also why a lot of people come to you too, right? If they're like around the area, they're like, I need to see Dr. Zhu because I found her on social media. So I'm just really happy to hear that you have definitely progressed a lot more faster and more forward than, you know, many other people in your, as your colleagues. And just having your own practice, I know that in many ways you're like, your own entrepreneur, you're, you're an entrepreneur as well, right? Setting up your own practice, that's a, a hustle in itself. But I hear that for a lot of people who practice medicine, they know how to practice medicine. They're really, really educated in that field, but it's very hard for them to know how to manage people, how to set up their own practice, how to run a practice as a leader, right? Because they're not taught those type of skills in school. They're just taught how to practice medicine. So tell us about like when you were starting up your own practice, what were those experiences like? I'm sure you had to do everything by yourself, right? Just opening up your own practice. And what do you think takes to be a successful entrepreneur, especially in eye care? Mm -hmm. Yeah, th those are all great questions and things that doctors, the majority of doctors know nothing about. Because like you said, we don't learn any of that anything about that in training. I think, again, it helps to have a partner in crime. So Brian, he came from like dual degree dental and MBA background. So he was able to advise on some of those things early on, which was very helpful. But a lot of the stuff you just kind of learn on the fly, like you hire experts to help you in areas that you're not familiar with and you learn from them. And it's okay to do that because you're not going to be an expert on everything. So you have to know when to ask for help. And so when I was looking at this deal, like I had lawyers, I had consultants, accountants reviewing the P&Ls of this practice, like doing the valuation of this practice and seeing what it was worth and what the projected growth would be. And you just learn from that whole process. I think you just learn from doing. Like it's one thing to read about it in a book, 
go to online courses, but when you're actually doing it yourself, like that's the best way to learn. And so just from that, and then every month reviewing my, you know, P&Ls and things like that, and knowing where to save money, where to cut on expenses. And, oh gosh, I'm still learning about like the taxes associated with all this stuff. Like it's so complicated, but you learn a little bit as you keep going. And I think you're always improving yourself too by attending these courses. So in medicine now, there's a lot more resources available than ever before. Like before it was just like a couple online blogs that you could check out. But now there's like dedicated conferences that you can go to that teach you how to be a practice manager, practice owner. So literally this past weekend in Scottsdale, Arizona, I just launched a meeting, a refractive meeting for refractive surgeons on how, on the business side of things, like how to run your practice, how to market, how to be a leader. And I course director for this. I worked with a more senior doctor who kind of took me under his wing. And so that's for some reason, it took doctors that long, at least in ophthalmology, to decide that we needed a meeting to focus on that. Like dentists, I feel like I've been doing it for a while. Like Brian is way more savvy than I am because I feel like they've been practice owners for a while. But ophthalmologists, it's still kind of new to us. And so just being a part of that meeting and listening to the speakers and also organizing it, putting it together. Like that was also very helpful to me and hopefully to the people who attended as well. Wow, that's really important. I didn't know that they had all of those um, meetings and trainings like that. I just thought that everyone just had to learn by themselves, you know, because a lot of people say that they get to learn how to run or practice medicine, but they don't get to learn how to run, you know, a practice as a leader. So I thought that, you know, a lot of it is just like self-taught, but I'm very, very happy to hear that there are more trainings that teach that type of stuff now because it is very much needed and it's hard to, to, you know, run your own business, to be an entrepreneur. So I'm glad to hear that. I think social media and this digital space that we have makes it a lot easier to, you know, sharing of information and all that. Whereas previously, it's kind of like you said, learning on your own or like learning from your neighbor. Now it's just like so much easier to disseminate that information. And I think doctors getting into social media, I mean, you've seen it's like with the COVID pandemic, right? Like so many doctors are on social media now because we know the importance of spreading accurate information, battling misinformation. And so if you're not online, which is, you know, where 75% of adults are getting their health information now, like you are not putting the truth out there. No one will be able to seek that information. It'll be the charlatans, a lot of them. They were the only ones on social media in the beginning. They were spreading a lot of false, dangerous information. And so finally, experts, MDs, like people with professional training are getting on and, you know, spreading what the truth is and what's science-based. And so that is so important. And I think people are, doctors, especially from the older generation, are understanding why the younger generation is getting online now. Because it was kind of seen as unprofessional in the beginning. But to be honest, doctors are just meeting patients where they are and they're making the information digestible, easy to comprehend, entertaining sometimes. Because that's the best way you're going to teach people, right? It's kind of boring to just put up a textbook. You know, you want to send your message in a way that is actually captivating and entertaining. That's the best way to reach the public these days through social media. Absolutely. And thank you so much for taking the time to do that too. Because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's really hard for people who aren't in the field to distinguish what is factual, what is not. You know, online too, right? When you Google things, like not all of it is factual and I'm pretty sure all of us can relate when we Google like a, a symptom, like, oh, I have a, I have a cold or I have a cough. 
And the first thing you see in your Google search is like COVID, COVID, COVID. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything is COVID or cancer. It's like one of those, right? <laughs> yeah. And I guess this is a good segue to talk about this campaign that we're supporting. So this campaign is the HHS COVID-19 public education campaign that's paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And we want to spend this segment talking about the importance of getting vaccinated, right? As you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of misinformation about getting vaccinated. I think one of the most outrageous things I heard is the government's going to plant a microchip inside you and control your brain. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, that's that's too like imaginative. But I just want to give you a second to speak about your thoughts of being vaccinated, why it's so important for people to, to go out there and protect themselves and protect other people. Yeah, I mean, I would say that thankfully, I think the majority of people are on board with vaccinations and you know, science-based evidence and the information that's been spread by Dr. Fauci and, you know, the experts who actually know what they're talking about. I think majority of people are on board and recognize the importance of protecting yourself and those around you. Like, that's the beauty of vaccination. It's not about yourself, right? It's about public health and protecting those around you, especially those who can't get vaccinated themselves because they have underlying illnesses or whatever. So this is this is not about you. This is a conscious decision to protect those around you more vulnerable. And it's just that there's a small minority who are very vocal. And those are the people who spread a lot of this misinformation online. And fortunately, it is a small amount of people, but they are, again, very vocal. And so, again, it's very important for the rest of us, like you're doing through your platform, you know, anyone who has a platform to spread awareness and, and what's right. I mean, at this point, I feel like most people are vaccinated, boosted like times two, like I myself am, my whole family is. The only individual who is not and cannot is my poor baby who is turning two in July. And we still haven't figured out a vaccine for children under five. But luckily, there are things that you can do to protect them. Obviously, the most important is make sure everyone around them is vaccinated, you know, and just be very smart about things. You know, don't don't put them in school if, if he himself is showing symptoms or, you know, obviously, if other kids are symptomatic and not vaccinated, you know, probably stay away from those those environments. But I think that for the majority of people now age five and older, we really all should be vaccinated. There's really no reason not to. And I also saw that most recently, I think there is a booster now that's approved for kids age five to 11. So kids can get boosted now too, because, you know, we know some of that immunity wanes over time. And so it's good to keep up to date. And it's also different from natural immunity. Like some people are like, well, my kid or whatever, I was already exposed, I already got infected, like there's no point in me getting vaccinated. But natural immunity is very different from the immunity provided by vaccines, which has been shown to be more robust and to last longer too. And so I think if you haven't got vaccinated yet, but you're a candidate, like, please do it, you know, for yourself and for those around you. You know, it's really a public health issue. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with that statement more, right? It's you want to protect your loved ones, not just yourself, right? You want to protect people around you, your kids, your grandparents, those like around you. So I'm kind of curious too, like, I mean, you're on social media a lot. Like, what has been some of the, the most outrageous things you saw, like, misinformation wise about COVID vaccine? Oh my God. I, I, God, I, I don't know. I, I can't even remember them all. Like, like you said, there's a chip in there because the government is, monitoring us or COVID vaccine makes you infertile, I guess. That was like a big myth amongst women trying to get pregnant because they were trying to get into this fear, very deep fear that women have who are having trouble getting pregnant. Like fertility is such a precious issue for a lot of women. 
and that they were attacking that and having COVID, you know, somehow affect that, that's and tugging at their emotional heartstrings with that topic, like that just crossed the line for me. And so many things I, I, I can't even fathom all like, you can just oh drinking bleach what was it like drinking stuff that was also killing the virus like all kinds of ingestions of toxic substances that's probably is not a good idea <laughs> um, I, I remember that now it's drinking bleach drinking what is it horse oh, tranquilizer oh, yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> oh my god parasitic treatments right like taking that for yourself it's just they're worried about fda trials which is backed by you know so many patients so much like sound studies and then they're just pitching these random therapies that literally have zero backing zero research zero studies and they're just pitching it as an idea so i i don't even understand where the common sense comes from when, when they're kind of fear-mongering and pitching these outrageous ideas yeah i think that was when you know COVID had first came out and People are just kind of making up everything. and But I'm glad we're getting to a place where there's like a little bit more research on it. And we're able to prove that some of those myths are not true. But just on the topic of COVID-19, I want to know, can you share with us like how your treatment as a doctor changed during COVID-19? Like what did you have to do during that time, during the pandemic? Like did you have to transition to doing virtual assessments? And how did that turn out? Because for eye exams, I imagine that can be extremely difficult to do that, to do that virtually. But just talk to us about like what are some of the ways that you had to change your treatment as a doctor during that time? Right. So I feel like some some fields were hit harder by COVID, restaurant industry being one of them, of course, healthcare being the other. We had to close down in the beginning like just shut down all operations because technically cataract surgery and the surgeries that I was doing was considered elective surgery. It's not life-threatening to have a cataract, right? So you could potentially wait, even if you couldn't see anymore, like you could wait. And so we had to just shut down for a whole month where I wasn't operating and our staff wasn't getting paid. And I had no idea, like our overhead was still accumulating. I had no idea if we would ever bounce back from that period. And so it was a very scary period. And at the same time, our patients were suffering because of, you know, we couldn't do elective procedures, but, you know, senior citizens were falling from their cataracts and, you know, sustaining fractures and life-threatening debilitation because your sight is so vital to your the safety and your ability to function every day. And so even though it wasn't life-threatening, it was certainly urgent and necessary in a lot of cases. And so I was really worried for my patients as well. And we couldn't see a lot of them for their urgent eye exams. Like, so they had redness or pain. <laughs> they had to go to the emergency rooms who were open, but they couldn't see me, right? Telemedicine was definitely one area in which we could assess some of those issues. But like you mentioned, it's just so difficult in eye care. And it's an area of eye care that I think had already been growing before COVID because there are rural areas that don't have access to eye specialists. And telemedicine is the only way to do routine screening of like diabetic eye diseases and cataracts and things like that. But since the pandemic, there's been more money and more effort put into telemedicine because we realize this is going to be a part of our, you know, the way that we deliver eye care now. Like it's not just something that passed because of COVID. It's something that we actually recognize the value of because, again, not every area has access to specialists and it keeps our clinics less congested, too. So there are certain things that we can do through telemedicine. There are apps now that you can use to check your vision relatively accurately. You can always, you know, do like a face-to-face -face exploration of the patient's symptoms the best that you can. You can kind of show a picture of your eye <laughs> so we can see the level of redness. 
But anything beyond that is pretty difficult to assess because the eye is a very visual field and you really have to come in so we can use our special microscopes, special imaging and scanners to really detect if there's a problem with your vision or your eye health. But we are trying to come up with more technologies to improve that diagnosis. So now there's like adapters that you can attach on your iPhone that actually can take a picture of the back of your retina, you know, for like diabetes screen. Yeah. Hopefully there's more technologies that will help you check your eye pressure too remotely. You know how you have to go in the office and there's like this eye puff or sometimes you have to like tap on your eye. Maybe there's a way to do that remotely too. So definitely a huge room for innovation in this area. That's very much needed. That's amazing. I mean, I'm excited to see all of those innovations come to life. And I mean, yeah, I feel like the technology for eye care and eye exams is just progressing so fast. So I'm very happy to know that even after COVID is over, those new technology is going to stay because, you know, I think a lot of people are just like doing everything at home nowadays and we need to, you know, get with the times pretty much. Um, so I'm really happy and excited to hear that. And I think with the hygiene and sanitation, like we took it to a whole nother level and I think we're going to keep it there. You know, like we still ask patients to wear masks. We still screen them about symptoms. We still check their temperature if they have symptoms. So a lot of that stuff I think will never go away. And I think it's better for our patients too. And there are a lot of surgeries now that we do bilateral homology. It's kind of been gold standard to do one eye at a time. Besides LASIK, where we do both eyes, but a lot of surgeries like cataract surgery, we only do one eye at a time. But because COVID prevented so many patients from getting their care and there's such a huge backlog, a lot of doctors started doing both eyes the same day. And so I do think that that's going to be a future, the future too, because it's going to decrease healthcare costs. It's more convenient for the patient. And we've done it in a way that is safe and effective. And so COVID has really revolutionized eye care in many ways. And I think it's going to just keep pushing us forward to be better. Absolutely. And I think out of every negative situation, there's always a positive situation. And this is one of them. And I, yeah, it does. I mean, the pandemic itself is a whole terrible situation. But I mean, it's helping us rethink our lives, helping rethink how we do things. And honestly, this is the only time that we had in the history of mankind over the last hundred years is to stop and pause and be like, are we doing things the best way that we should? Right. Yeah. To reflect. Absolutely. So I do have a final question. And that question is, do you have any advice for anybody looking to start their own practice at this point? <laughs> I think you just have to take the plunge. Like I think a lot of doctors, especially are in analysis paralysis, because we're all kind of like type A personalities. We like to know everything before we jump into it, especially if it's something that we're not comfortable and familiar with. And running a practice and being entrepreneur is very, very scary. Because again, we don't learn that as a doctor. But you know, if you just keep analyzing it without pulling the trigger, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. I personally know a lot of colleagues who use the pandemic at the time to actually start their own practice, like to leave their associate job and decide that, hey, you know, I, I want to have more control over my day to day. I want to have more impact on my patients, more say. And so they did it during probably the scariest time when everything was so unstable, right? So if they can do it, like honestly, anyone can do it. You just have to do the work, do the be prepared to work, obviously. But like I said before, the the bigger the risk, the bigger reward. And so I think that, you know, there's really no reason that you should be scared. And I think there's still a place for doctor-owned practices. There's patients who are looking for that more personal boutique care because a lot of people are afraid that private equity is just taking over and it's hard to compete as a solo doctor. Um, but I do think there's still a place for sure for doctor-owned practices. 
And even if you do work with a large group um, where you at least have partial ownership and you can still make a lot of the day-to-day decisions. And so I think autonomy is huge, especially for doctors and something that we should not so easily give up. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Daphne. I took away from that that, you know, just go for it. And, you know, there's just so many resources out there that, you know, you can always look up, you know, what are the best practices and just methods in order to start your own practice. So really love that message. So thank you so much for sharing that. And where can our listeners find out more about you? online and your practice online? Yeah. So I have my website, www.dvimd.com. That's E-Y-E-M-D. And then literally the same handle on almost every single platform, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, which is at D-V-E-Y-E-M-D. Perfect. We will leave all of those in our show notes. Dr. Dagny Zhu, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It was amazing just hearing your story. Thank you guys, Maggie and Brian, for having me on. And I love being a part of the Asian Hustle Network. And please keep uplifting our community. Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course. Thank you, Dagny. really appreciate your story. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.